A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. So glad you could join us as we revel in wrong think, something that's becoming more of a necessity every passing day. And the good news is, if you're kind of new, if you're a first-time wrong thinker, we will gently lead you along the way, well, at least lead you to a comfortable place where you can uh, sit down and enjoy the company and the camaraderie of people who have chosen to think for themselves, to think as clearly and independently as they possibly can. So that means I'm not going to tell you what to believe. I'm not going to tell you that uh, here's the way you have to think or else you're a bad person. But I'm going to suggest that there's a lot of disinformation out there. There's a very concerted effort to keep us from seeing the truth, from recognizing it, and, and even more so from living it. So if that resonates with you, I welcome you. You have found the right place. Come claim your rights as a free individual and start to make the difference you were born to make. Some great sponsors make this program possible on a daily basis. HSLAmmo.com is one of them. Also, Sewing and Quilting Center. MonticelloCollege.org. LifesavingFood.com. The Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. And I'm very happy to welcome a new sponsor, one that I hope to talk about a little bit later on in the show. GovernYourCrypto.com. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we're covering all the bases today. So there are a couple different things I want to begin with. One, of course, is uh, uh, an event that happened uh, in uh, Idaho over the weekend, and it was uh, the the taking of a baby from its family. And you know, I I'm not going to go into a ton of of uh, of detail here, but uh, a young family in Meridian, Idaho, apparently has a 10 month old baby named Cyrus. And uh, Cyrus, at uh, one of his most recent uh, checkups, was found to be underweight. And so the the doctors, I believe, uh, had him, they may have had him hospitalized for a couple of days, but he, he gained weight. They had a follow-up visit scheduled, and uh, and he, he apparently was well enough. He was discharged. They came back for a follow-up appointment, and uh, then uh, baby Cyrus had lost some weight. So another follow-up appointment was made. But the parents, uh, for, for whatever reason, I don't know what, uh, what the reasoning was, um, did not make that follow-up appointment. And the doctor pulled the trigger and called CPS, and or I guess it would, yeah, I guess Child Protective Services, and got the police involved. So over the weekend, uh, Meridian Police took this 10-month-old infant who is breastfeeding from his mother, and uh, they, they've medically kidnapped him. They have uh, they have taken him to a hospital, which denies the hospital. St. Luke's in, in Meridian, Idaho, denies that they have, uh, you know, baby Cyrus. And it, it's turned into quite a debacle. Ammon Bundy and his People's Rights Organization were notified about uh, the issue and it brought hundreds of people to the hospital on Sunday to protest. Ammon was actually there, uh, I believe it was Friday night, Saturday morning. He was arrested. His campaign manager was arrested uh, for for trespassing. You know, of course, a contrived charge. Well, we told him to leave and he wouldn't go the second we told him to go. So um, I don't know. You know, I don't want to sound cavalier about uh, about the law, but I, I just I, I want to point something out here that 
when will when will lawmakers and law enforcers understand threatening Ammon Bundy with arrest is the most hollow threat you can possibly make. He was out on bail uh, within hours and back protesting by noon on Saturday. This guy knows the routine. I mean, he sat in prison for nearly two years only to be uh, to be freed because the government dropped its charges against him and his family. With prejudice, I will add, meaning they can't ever file, file those same charges again. Now, some people are saying, well, this is going to hurt Ammon's campaign for as he's running for the governor of Idaho. And, you know, at night, I don't know, some people might, oh, well, I was really with him until I saw that he had been arrested. Then, okay, well, if you just think that arrest was, you know, the first time he's ever been put in handcuffs and taken off to jail, no. But uh, I would much rather look at a politician who was actually willing to get in there, have skin in the game, and risk arrest when standing up for the rights of someone than I would to uh, someone who just sits there and makes speeches about it. Mitt Romney, I'm looking your direction. You'd make a lot of pretty speeches, but wouldn't actually do anything of substance. <clears throat> the crazy thing about it is, this is such a polarizing thing when a, when a child is taken. There, for a lot of people, there's this assumption, that, well, you know, there had to be something here. And, you know, I've seen video of when the police took this baby from his mother, and it's it was it was so manipulative and deceptive the way, well, we just want to have you and your baby. The police followed the mom and the dad who were visiting with friends. They had baby Cyrus with them. They followed them and stopped them at a gas station, called paramedics there and said, <clears throat> we just want to have these EMTs check out your baby. Mom, come with us and the baby into the ambulance and, and we'll go ahead and, and just check him out and make sure he's okay. And, of course, it was a ruse. It was, you know, we just want to get you out of the public's eyes while we take your baby from you and arrest you for not cooperating with us. Now, you'd have to watch the video to appreciate how calm and collected this mom was. And baby, you know, baby Cyrus, he he's, he's certainly, you know, thin, but he's not, like, sickly, emaciated, oh, my goodness, you know, Ethiopian child looking, uh, you know, like you would, would think. And the mom keeps asking, why can't, you know, I, I understand the doctor has, has gotten CPS involved and the police just kept pleading, well, I'm not the detective in charge. Well, I'm not the one who makes these decisions and just kept escalating, escalating, escalating until finally it's like, look, you either give us the baby or you're going to jail. Well, she would not give them the baby. They didn't violently take him from her, but uh, they did arrest her again with Ammon and his campaign manager as well. That, I guess the campaign manager in Amma, that came later at the hospital. But bottom line is this. Sometimes the state is wrong. And if you don't believe me, I would ask you, please consider the case of Parker Jensen. Do you remember this? Because this was a while back, okay? This was in uh, early, I, I want to say like 2001, 2002, somewhere in there. Parker Jensen was a, a 12 or 13-year-old kid who was uh, diagnosed by one doctor with, uh, I think it was called Ewing sarcoma. And it was a cancer. They diagnosed a growth that was found under his tongue as a type of cancer. And and apparently Ewing sarcoma is a particularly <clears throat> dangerous kind of cancer and spreads very quickly. Now, the recommendation was you need to put Parker on chemotherapy immediately, if not sooner. And uh, his parents were like, whoa, 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 whoa. Can we get another opinion on this? Because... Chemotherapy at that age where he's, you know, prepubescent, this could actually, you know, damage him. This could render him sterile for the rest of his life. 
And and the doctors, I think it was, I'm trying to remember where, where it was, if it was at Primary Children's or uh, or some other doctor. They basically... The doctor said, well, this is a medical emergency, pulled the trigger on DCFS, got them involved. And Parker and his parents had gone to Idaho to visit family. And the state of Utah charged his parents with kidnapping. him, And it was a big to do. I mean, I did, some of you will remember this. This is one of the few times I actually saw my wife get, get really fired up. Mama Bear came out. She took my kids up to the Utah Capitol with hundreds of other people to protest this. And eventually, the state backed down, dropped the criminal charges against Parker's parents, stopped trying to force chemotherapy on him against his will. But the state, you know, I think it was uh, Mark Shirtliff at the time, well, the blood is on your hands, parents. The blood is on your hands if this kid dies of cancer. Look, all I know is this was about 20 years ago. Parker Jensen is a full-grown, happily married dad living a healthy life. So, boy, it's shame how that turned out. But my point is simply the state was dead wrong. Now, this doesn't mean it's always going to be wrong, but there has to be, there has to be some kind of common sense that kicks in at some point. And it's, it's just sickening to me to, to see. And the news spin on it is just, oh, well, you know, these parents, they defied the state and they, they defied this doctor. And, you know, obviously they're up to no good. And if you have a statist mindset, meaning if you believe that everything that's not under the control of the state is by definition out of control, you're going to be looking for reasons to believe that what the police did was right. But let me tell you what they've accomplished the Meridian Idaho Police, along with CPS and, and St. Luke's Hospital, have succeeded in separating a nursing 10-month-old from his mom. He's not taking a bottle. So they've thoughtfully, forcefully inserted a feeding tube into this kid. I'm keeping an eye on the story. I'm not going to spend my whole time on it. But, man, this is, this is sickening on so many levels. And I don't think this kid was in any danger. The mom kept asking the police, why can't you take me with him if he needs to go to the hospital to be treated or if he needs to go somewhere to be examined? Why can't I go with him? Nope, ma'am. The switch has been thrown in our minds and we are enforcers. We are not peacekeepers. We are just simply here to make sure that the will of the state, as uh, it needs to be expressed through Child Protective Services, is observed. Something's really wrong about this. Might be a case worth keeping your eye on. We'll take a quick break. We'll be back right after these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Please click on my sponsored links, which you will find in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. In particular, you may want to pay some attention to lifesavingfood.com. Food storage has always been a wise idea. It's becoming almost an imperative, like you should really take it seriously. And if you're looking for a way to do that and yet to not break the bank, not that there aren't other things competing for your money, gas tank, we're looking your direction. This would be a really great time to, to bolster your stores of food. Make sure you have what you need for yourself, for your family, possibly for your neighbors around you in case of times of need. Because I think those times of need are quickly approaching. Lifesavingfood.com. 
Well, you know, the shift that's taking place right now on so many levels, economically, culturally, politically, spiritually, there's a shift. You're trying to get your bearings on, well, what exactly is happening? Love this article by Jeffrey Tucker from the Brownstone Institute. How 70 years of progress came to an end. Sometimes it's pretty tough to quantify. There's so much going on. We just have a tough time putting it all into perspective so that we can make sense of what's happened. And the last couple of years, stuff's been popping off pretty quick, wouldn't you say? So let's let's take a quick dive into this and just see what has happened and, and why are we experiencing this enormous shift that most of us sense or we recognize but still can't quite put our finger on. Jeffrey Tucker says the new inflation numbers are out. It's 8% on consumer prices, or so they say. But he says not even that is believable. More likely, it's already double-digit. Now, the U.S. president blames Russia, clearly hoping the Americans are too dull to understand timelines or economics. But let's look at the bigger picture. The U.S. has imposed absolutely brutal sanctions on a country whose freedom from Soviet domination it celebrated only 30 years ago. These sanctions are typical of the type in that they harm average people in all countries while the ruling class in all countries is given an opportunity to scapegoat foreigners for domestic problems. But what they achieve otherwise is never clear. History gives us precious few examples of economic sanctions that inspired domestic reform that wasn't already in progress. But he says still, if we impose them, or we impose them rather, if only to do something, And we've been here most recently with this model of policy. Do something seems to be do something damaging that doesn't really address the underlying problem, rather. See COVID, for example. Meanwhile, our information flows are being severely restricted. Russia today, America, with its expansive offices in D.C. and mostly American staff, has been shut down completely. Now, by whom and the exact circumstances is not exactly clear. But the thing you have to realize is it was a hugely popular station, very high quality. Now, Jeffrey Tucker says, oh, you can say, I was just Putin propaganda. But he says, I never experienced that. In fact, he says, I've appeared often and have for years on the financial show Boom Bust, along with some very good reporters and commentators, including his friends Ben Swan and Rachel Blevins. Tucker says it was one of the few independent journalistic outfits that offered alternative points of view. In fact, he says, I was never censored, not once. Some shows offered extended discussions that allowed me to debate and speak for 20 minutes or more, which is virtually unheard of in American media. Boom Bust, in particular, reported on subjects that others don't cover, like the crypto industry, the real status of inflation, and other subjects. Now, did they get government funding? Yes. And so does the BBC, PBS, NPR, and the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. So it's not a big surprise. Come on. Every country has a state-funded media outlet. And oddly, they are often more independent than the ostensibly private media sources. Jeffrey Tucker says a Freedom of Information Act request also just revealed that all the major media outlets in the U.S. received massive funding, over a billion dollars, from the Biden administration to promote government virus propaganda. So, you know, there's that too. Now, YouTube has quickly followed up censoring all content from Russia today on its U.S. platform. See, you're not even allowed to know. That action is emblematic of big tech generally. 
Jeffrey Tucker says it's been a stunning reversal. The libertarian ethos that informed the founding and the building of these companies has flipped to the point that censorship has become brazen, ruthless, and relentless. He says what government cannot get away due to judicial checks, get away with due to judicial checks, has been effectively outsourced to privately or ostensibly private companies that take their marching orders from the powers that be. Of course, we saw this with the jabs as well. Take the shot or lose your job. Now, he says, in foreign relations, here we are today. The U.S. is in a de facto but undeclared war with Russia. No one calls it that, but that's what it amounts to when the U.S. is providing armaments through intermediaries to the forces that Russia is battling on its border. This intensifies and escalates conflict, same as sanctions. So his point is the dangers are intense on all fronts right now. And it's not clear that decision makers even understand what they're doing, or maybe they do. Since the end of the Cold War, the U.S. military-industrial complex has been searching for a reliable enemy that the U.S. population could hate as a way to to distract from the misdeeds of the political elite at home. After decades of cycling through them, it appears that the old enemy was the best enemy. And with a small turn of the dial, vast swaths of high-end opinion are exclusively focused on the terrible plight of Ukraine. Meanwhile, gas prices are at a 40-year high. Inflation is now arguably higher than in a century. And the U.S. president blames it all on Putin, even though the Biden administration itself has worked since taking office to curb U.S. fossil fuel production. Today, the same administration is blaming the U.S. oil industry for not producing enough. So it appears that the prosperity and relatively uh, low inflation plus economic growth never as great as it could have been, but not entirely shabby, of the last 40 years, has come to an end. Even more than that, we can go back 70 years and observe that the ethos of policy reform has taken a dramatic shift in a different direction. And it seems more obvious in retrospect to what happened here, even if it wasn't entirely visible until now. And so he lists out some of the important dates in the briefest possible form. 1948, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, GATT, passed as the main structure for bringing about global free trade as a means of reducing the likelihood of war. It was never fully free, says Jeffrey Tucker, but the long-run trajectory was toward ever lower tariffs and barriers and ever more internationalization. And this became a major contributing factor to building prosperity. In fact, it's in line with Adam Smith. The more extensive the division of labor, the more gains to efficiency and wealth. Decade after decade, the system produced fabulous prosperity, even in the midst of the Cold War. The nuclear standoff between the U.S. and Russia, mostly mediated through diplomacy, paradoxically forestalled World War III and assured that most conflicts were regional. The secular trend in the U.S. was toward rising stocks and rising wealth. This brings us to 1989-1991. Unexpectedly, the Soviet Union completely fell apart. The Berlin Wall fell, Eastern Europe threw off the yoke, new nations were created out of old ones. At the same time, China had made enormous progress in opening up economically. So this combination of events introduced billions of people to the world economy, drove up production, stabilized wages, and led to a new era of astonishing growth. 1995, the web browser was invented and the digital age began. Now the world was connected. New opportunities for entrepreneurship and innovation were everywhere. Competition intensified, markets for everything exploded. The dollar was the king of the world. 
The Fed had new opportunities to expand money printing because the markets were everywhere and expanding. Jeffrey Tucker says we avoided inflation generally. Americans and and the world itself benefited enormously. And it felt like there would be no end to the progress. But in 2001, the new millennium brought hope and tragedy signifying a fork in the road. You can probably guess some of the reasons, right? China joined the World Trade Organization even as the events of 9-11 spawned a series of millennial U.S. military crusades that drained lives and resources in the U.S. with multiple unwinnable wars. And there were precious few apologies, but the message became increasingly clear. The empire would not normalize into a commercial republic. Instead, it would hunt for ever more crusades. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Our program is brought to you in part by the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah. If you are hearing me anywhere within the state of Utah, though, you should know that you can count on the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage to get you the loan you need without delay. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to either click on the email link I provide in my show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. It's there under the, under the sponsors. Or you can call her at 435-703-4522. Heather's NMLS ID is 715-386. Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. These are the folks you need to talk to. If you are in the in the market for a home loan, a VA loan, a traditional loan, reverse mortgage, let Heather Turner and her team take care of you. All right, back to Jeffrey Tucker's article about uh, 70 years of progress and how it came to an end. The next date he mentions on the timeline of this shift was 2018. This is where Donald Trump embarked on his long-promised protectionist campaign, slapping tariffs on everything, pulling out of trade treaties, invading against any government with whom the U.S. carried a trade deficit, creating a digital iron curtain with China, and generally violating every precept of post-war consensus. Now, he did a lot of good in other areas of policy, to be sure, says Jeffrey Tucker. But his personal and wild fixation on economic nationalism was his passion and prize. And it didn't work either. It only increased prices for goods and services in the U.S. and increased international tension. It also led to a target being put on his head. This was the beginning of the end. China's Communist Party turned more inwardly hegemonic and outwardly aggressive. Then comes 2020. Jeffrey Tucker says, look, I don't need to recount the grisly and grim details of this horror-filled year. It was shocking with hundreds of thousands of businesses being destroyed, kids losing two years of education, along with the massive demographic upheaval and cultural demoralization, all in the name of virus control. Now, the Federal Reserve accommodated, accommodated congressional spending like never before, guaranteeing a future of inflation. And that should be unbearably obvious by now, but... Truly, it was denied back then that this would be the outcome. So here we are today, back decades in a de facto war with Russia. What poetry, he says, what madness. The progress of 70 years has been fully reversed in a mere four years. And the interesting thing to note here is both parties are implicated. It's a new age of illiberalism, a much darker age. And he warns it can get much worse. The dangers are hugely present all around us today. 
We don't really know how the public's going to respond to living amidst the dramatic weakening of the currency and the end of the American empire. Jeffrey Tucker says, I asked a historian last week how previous empires dealt with decline, speaking in particular of Spain and England. And he said, it is never obvious in the generation that most directly experiences the new chapter in history. Isn't that interesting? Everyone pretends that the glory is still there. Nothing really changed. And it can take a century or more before the realization sets in that the empire and the good old days are fully gone. Now, Jeffrey Tucker says, look, the history I just summarized pretty much covers the life of almost all Americans alive. We truly did not know how good we had it. The world we're entering now is unlike anything we've previously experienced. Maybe two years ago there was a chance to dig our way out of this pit of hell. But that seems ever less likely with each passing day. Or, he says, perhaps I'm too pessimistic. History doesn't have a single trajectory. And as quickly as the descent into madness occurred, there remains a chance that popular opinion could force a reversal, a renewal of human rights, an appreciation for international cooperation and diplomacy, new limits on government, and the application of reason instead of frenzy and propaganda in matters of policy. But he says we must hope, pray, and work to make it so. I thought that was kind of interesting. I'm going to switch now to uh, the erasing of history. We had two years of COVID tyranny, and right now that is being very quietly swept under the rug while everyone's attention is being focused on Ukraine. Jordan Schachtel in his dossier Substack has an excellent essay about big tech's campaign to mop up two years of COVID tyranny. He says some two years into COVID mania, it appears that the forces for COVID tyranny have abandoned their failed war on a virus, at least for now. But they still can't give up on the reality that it was all for nothing. He says they can't. They can't acknowledge that the people in charge of society got everything they wanted and ended up destroying hundreds of millions of lives with nothing beneficial, at least for decent people, to show for it. Jordan Schachtel says there have now been dozens and dozens of high-profile detractors from the COVID narrative rather, who have recently been deplatformed from the conversation. In fact, he says, yours truly is a frequent narrative offender, is almost definitely existing there on borrowed time. Because right now, big tech is engaged in a giant mop-up operation to protect the COVID narrative. Powerful governments and corporate press as their most loyal allies is happy to churn out the material to accommodate them. And these forces are creating an echo chamber, echo chamber rather, that insists upon complete uniformity. So to protect the narrative, dissidents must be banished from the public square. Now, according to the narrative, we just discovered that these tools may not really work, but that can't be the fault of the people who employed these tools. In the echo chamber, there was no dissent to this two-year campaign of draconian terror. Exposing the longevity of the outsider narrative will cause a problem for the people in charge, so it's best to remove evidence that this outsider narrative existed in the first place. And he gives some great examples of this. There's, here's a, a tweet from the uh, from uh, New York Times, or regarding the New York Times. It asks the question, do COVID precautions work? The, the answer is surprisingly unclear. So says D. D. Leonhardt from the New York Times. And the tweeter says, uh, this is infuriating. Now the New York Times starts to backpedal on COVID protocols and look what else. 
highlights we've had many problems over the past two years. Did you hear that from the New York Times and other mass media sources over the last couple of years? Many problems? Well, there's no problem. Take the jab. Including mental health troubles, elevated blood pressure, drug overdoses, violent crime, vehicle crashes, and more. And then listen to this. If a new variant emerges and hospitals are again at risk of being overwhelmed, then reinstating COVID restrictions may make sense, again, despite their modest effects. What? It didn't work, but we probably better do it again just in case should another variant, you know, emerge. You understand what's being said here, right? The tools are still there. They've been set aside for the moment while everybody's focusing on, you know, on on the war with Russia and Ukraine. But the tools are still there. They can still be picked up and put to use again. This is the thing that has to happen. We have got to remove those tools from the hands or from out of reach of those in power. Scary stuff. Back to Jordan Schachtel's article. He says, you can't have reporters showcasing evidence that these tools to stop COVID never worked. They have to proclaim that this is some new discovery, not something these rogue independent journalists have been articulating for two years. So when when this senior writer at the New York Times says, uh, you know, masks, vaccines, staying at home really didn't make a major difference in the COVID case rates. That's very inconvenient. And it's detracting from the COVID narrative. So these detractors are slowly being purged by big tech. Just this last week, outstanding journalist Michael Sanger, author of Snake Oil, How Xi Jinping Shut Down the World, was banned from Twitter. His infraction? He restated the reality that the past two years have been a catastrophe of pseudoscience and that all the suffering imposed upon the masses have only created additional problems on top of the virus problem. Last Friday morning, they added radio host Shannon Joy to the list for highlighting the tens of thousands of various side effect reports in COVID vaccines given to children. Now, Jordan Schachtel says there has to be a reason for it all. Because you don't want people to get the impression that the whole public health industry is a giant ideological scam. You don't want to give people the idea that Big Pharma has transformed into a cartel of money and power-hungry snake oil scammers and outright scam artists. And you don't want the plebeians to start thinking that the CDC, the FDA, NIH, and every other government health department couldn't care less about their health and are merely tools of state interests. So instead of coming clean about these aforementioned realities, the big tech mop-up crew has turned its attention to protecting the countless lies concocted by the ruling class so that these actors can retain good standing in the eyes of their constituency. Oh, that's harsh. But he's right. And by the way, he, he actually he gives a shout-out to Substack. Jordan Schachtel says, Thank goodness for Substack, which allows me to publish my best reporting without fear of being censored or deplatformed. And he tells his readers, I so, supp- I so appreciate your support. You know, I've, I've kind of gained a new appreciation of Substack. In fact, I'm finding that the best sources of information, the best resources for wrong thinkers that I'm able to get my hands on, more and more I am finding on these individual Substack accounts. Jordan Schachtel being one of the ones who I really like to turn to just to get a feel for what's going on. No, okay, maybe that makes me some kind of mindless fanboy, but... Unlike the media, Jordan Schachtel at least gives me the opportunity of hearing other points of view and then deciding what's right. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I just want to give a quick shout out here to HSLAmmo.com. This is my friend Spencer Worthington. He is a uh, member of the St. George community, started this ammo company. He employs a wonderful crew of people and has probably done more than, uh, than just about anybody I can name off the top of my head in, uh, in helping to introduce people to the shooting sports and to support the shooting sports in a really positive way. So if, uh, if for some reason you are into the shooting sports and you need ammunition, I would encourage you go to HSLAmmo.com or if you're in St. George, you know, find the places that carry his ammo or perhaps even go to, go to Spencer yourself and uh, help support his business. I don't know. I'm maybe I'm weird when I think this way, but um, to me, ammo is is as good as precious metal. In that, uh, you know, you can you can store it for years and years. It's it's divisible. You know, if I wanted to sell or barter five rounds for you know a cheeseburger, whatever the case may be, I could do that. Uh, you know, conceivably, when when we turn into Mad Max world, which it appears we're going to at some point, I kid. But nonetheless, it's an it's an excellent store of value in that somebody will always need it. So if you're thinking about precious metals, yes, gold and silver are great, but so are copper, lead, and brass. Just saying. Okay, a couple quick stories I want to touch on here before the hour's up. Let's talk about the surreal amount of psychological manipulation that we're seeing right now. And uh, here's a very fascinating take from the Good Citizen substack on the colors of Ukraine stay mainly in the brain. This is an article about how iconic memory and color psychology can be used to manipulate the masses. The Good Citizen says the social engineers are everywhere. We're ruled by psychopaths who use teams of behavioral psychologists to nudge society in one direction or another. Those charged with this grotesque duty in Britain even apologized for using totalitarian methods of propaganda to create fear and hysteria to subdue the population during the pandemic. Now, this U.K. government PSYOP group known as the Behavioral Insights Team, or the Nudge Unit. Ever heard of them? Yeah. Laura Dodsworth, a senior fellow substacker, wrote a bestseller on this, uh, A State of Fear, How the U.K. Government Weaponized Fear During the COVID-19 Pandemic. And the Good Citizen says these psychological managers have piles of research and data on what's effective in moving the masses. Sometimes this happens through intentionally coordinated lockstep political policies like lockdowns and social distancing. Other times through intentional economic pain like high gas prices to alter consumer behavior, buy an electric vehicle. And to the most obvious nudging, if one is capable of seeing it, it occurs with intentional lies and propaganda to manipulate thoughts and feelings about events that are also often intentionally prepared in a way to affect our view of them. But there's a lesser known manipulation that happens at the subconscious level. He says, for instance... 20 years from now, a retired British man will sit at a park bench next to a young couple he overhears talking about the great pandemic of 2020 and 2022 and how they had to wear masks in preschool. And he'll eventually interrupt them and say, I remember those years. I remember them very well. Those were the blue and yellow years. And they'll look at him suspiciously before he asks, what do young lovers know about colors? (laughs) He will not offer them chocolates or ask about bus schedules. So from here, the good citizen goes into a description of how colors are absorbed through visual memory or iconic memory and can have deep, lasting associative effects, often influenced by our past experiences. 
In fact, Professor Axel Buther conducted one of the largest studies on color, memory, experience, and behavior that has its own TED Talk and website, Color Education. It involved a million images and 500 subjects over five years. Now, the effects of color on our emotional state are rarely acknowledged by the individual because the process is largely subconscious. And I believe this is from Dr. Buther. Our memory determines what a color means to us and how colors affect our thoughts and feelings. Colors determine the experience of ourself and the environment. They influence our behavior and control our actions, even though we rarely recognize the causes. According to their dedicated website, color psychology is based on the understanding of the effects of colors on the experience and behavior of people. Consequences for the design and communication process can be derived from an understanding of color meaning and color effects. Applied color psychology promotes the functionality of design and the effectiveness of communication. So, successful color psychology can help, can help us to achieve co- concrete targets. For instance, mediation of set messages, observation of desired behavior changes, observation of desired actions, and perception of positive emotions and feelings. Also, acceptance and satisfaction targets and target groups. Researchers found that colors induced psychologically associative effects on individuals with gray, often paired with insignificance or depression, red with passion and seduction, blue with melancholy and contemplation, violet with cheerfulness, and white with purity and peace. Now, in a different study, researchers did a series of repetitive tasks with subjects to test their working memory based on objects, location, and color. And while memory depleted as the number of tasks increased, the one attribute that survived longest was color. Their results demonstrated that our perception of color is superior to our perception of orientation and shape. Well, that kind of makes sense, right? Another study found that color works on memory recall, even improving outcomes in those with disabilities. In the clinical setting, specific interventions involving colors can be introduced to deal with memory-related problems like learning difficulty, autism, dyslexia, and others. With the use of color in the intervention, it can help patients to follow and understand the learning program better. So the Good Citizen asks, what if you wanted to develop a global learning system using colors so that certain colors were associated with an event and our psychological responses to that event? You see where this is headed? Go open your Facebook page right now. Scroll through. The colors blue and yellow jump out at you in any way? Hmm. Wonder if that's by accident. So the good citizen asks, what if you needed to manipulate the masses through psychological operations targeting their iconic memory, and you wanted them to associate two specific colors with two very different yet chronological events you had planned? What if you wanted to connect the emotional group assimilation from one event with the subsequent event using colors? Would you use the existing literature on color, memory, emotions, perception, and behavior to manipulate the masses in your favor? It's probably just another crazy conspiracy. Nothing to see here. Carry on. And then he links to this incredible video on mass formation color programming. It's worth your time to watch. I'm going to warn you, though, it may make you a little bit angry, at least make you a little bit uncomfortable, because you're going to recognize, what's this? Oh, blue masks. Oh, you've seen those, have you? 
And and the, the infographic about vaccinating children against COVID. Look at those colors, blue and yellow. So bright. And then what's this other event that we're, oh, we stand with Ukraine, blue and yellow. I mean, people who've been paying attention have heard talk of color revolutions. Oh, the orange revolution in Georgia, you know, over, uh, uh, you know, in the former Soviet Union. You know, just this was just a few years ago. Look, I'm not saying, yes, we're all being brainwashed and the colors blue and yellow are bad. I'm just saying when you see the similarities that pull up, I mean, let me give you another example. Okay, this is this is perhaps a little more benign example. Have you ever noticed a pizza place that didn't use colors of red, green, and white to their effect? Red especially. There's something about the color red that I don't know if it's it's the passion or if it's the seduction that, you know, makes us love pizza so much. I see this for uh, Mexican restaurants, taqueros and so forth, uh, so for, taqueros rather and so forth. I, I just think that uh, there's something to this, this color psychology. When I look at a restaurant sign or I, I look at, you know, a, a billboard advertising a restaurant or even food packaging in the grocery store. At a subconscious level, I know which ones I'm drawn to and, and which that's that's going to be yummy food. How do I know that? Because it has the color red or the color green right there on the box. Or the color yellow, perhaps. Or a combination of them. Yeah, I'm no expert on this, but I do know that uh, my eye is drawn and my appetite seems to be drawn, you know, to certain color combinations. And I don't think it's an accident. So the question I'm asking you to consider, and I know this is painful, is the same kind of manipulation being used to, to program us at a subconscious level to identify with or to recognize or perhaps even strive with and give our allegiance to a particular movement. You know, I, I can't say with any certainty, but again, go scroll through your Facebook uh, feed and or, or even Twitter and tell me, how many, uh, how many Ukrainian flags do you see? How much blue and yellow do you see? It must be working. Somebody got up in church and uh, bore their testimony about Ukraine. That's not something you hear very often, but uh, I'm guessing that came from somewhere. Hey, thanks again for joining us. Please subscribe to my show notes. You can do so at thebrianheidshow.com, and I'll put a copy in your email inbox each and every day. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome to the show. This is a place where we gather to engage in wrong think, which simply means questioning the narrative, looking at alternative viewpoints, trying to carry a little less water for this agenda or that agenda and being more focused on the principles. The end result is I want you to be more sure of who you are and what you stand for than simply what makes you angry or who or what you're against. It's a subtle distinction, but it's one that brings a lot more peace and happiness and a lot less anger into an already volatile situation. And I've got some great sponsors who help make this possible. They include 
the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, LifesavingFood.com, MonticelloCollege.org, SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com, and HSLAmmo.com. And I also want to welcome a new sponsor, GovernYourCrypto.com. In fact, I'm going to take just a moment here and just say, look, I never really took crypto that seriously until I heard that, uh, you know what, there are people in government who really don't like this and they want to get control of it because crypto has has cut the middleman, the centralized banks, the centralized government manipulators out of the picture because you can have that uh, peer-to-peer exchange securely with a permanent ledger record of it without uh, without having some middleman in officialdom giving the okay or, you know, the thumbs down. So if you have uh, caught the vision, of you saw what happened, maybe, for instance, the Canadian truckers or those who donated to them, frozen accounts, people coming after them financially, shutting them out of the financial system. Maybe like me, you've started to worry, is my money really my own? Maybe it's time to start to putting some value into crypto, keeping, you know, your own wallet so that you don't have to risk somebody else taking it from you against your will. Go to governyourcrypto.com, and uh, from there, it's, it's, it's up to you. I'm not uh, saying any one particular kind. I'm just saying this makes more sense than ever. And, yes, it really does come down to at some level, um, what's that? Someone in government is telling me you can't have that? By gosh, I will have it then <laughs> because you told me that I can't. Now, that may be kind of a dangerous attitude, and I don't know if, if you've noticed this, but the battle over free speech is getting a lot more real than most people think. Got a report here from the Gateway Pundit. It says, uh, Mayorkas, who I guess is the secretary of uh, the Department of Homeland Security, releases new rules on extremism. DHS will target anyone who believes election was stolen or who challenged Fauci's ever-changing COVID narrative. Now, the article starts by pointing out at Joe Biden's first year in office, over two million illegal aliens from dozens of countries walked into the United States across the southern border. And the numbers this year look even greater. Joe Biden and DHS Secretary Mayorkas immediately opened up the southern border after they came into office. Oh, and Biden also set another record. Only 59,011 illegals were deported his first year in office. That's the lowest number since 1995. So it should be obvious by now that Biden is intending to destroy the U.S. before he leaves office, says this article from the Gateway Pundit. Now Mayorkas is working on a very important project. Rather than shut down the border, Mayorkas released new rules on extremism. And this is where you need to pay attention because this is where you and I apparently are, uh, are in the crosshairs. The new guidelines on extremist behavior include those who question the fraud in the 2020 election and anyone who questions the regime's talking points on COVID and its treatments, including the mandates. So this is, this is from those new guidelines. A March 2021 unclassified threat assessment prepared by the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, Department of Justice, and Department of Homeland Security noted that domestic violent extremists who are motivated by a range of ideologies and galvanized by recent political and societal events in the United States post an elevated threat to the homeland in 2021. The assessment pointed to newer sociopolitical developments, such as narratives of fraud in the recent general election, the emboldening impact of the violent breach of the U.S. Capitol, conditions related to the COVID-19 pandemic, 
and conspiracy theories promoting violence that will almost certainly spur some domestic violent extremists to try to engage in violence this year. Now, this was released in 2021. Did you see that happen? No. But they're, they're clearly looking in this direction and blaming, well, you know, we have to crack down before it does. See, over half the U.S. population questions the results of the 2020 presidential election. And without landing on too many people's toes, I'll tell you, I'm one of them. Not because I think Donald Trump was the answer to all of our prayers and he's, you know, he's the only person who could uh, do a good job of, of being president. There's just too many unanswered questions. And there are too many, there are too many smoking guns to, to conclude that, no, no, this was really above board and all these questions have been hashed out and, and fully vetted and answered publicly. They haven't. O'Brien, no court has uh, has decided in favor of Trump or anyone who's challenged the election. That's true. Most of them, on some technicality, refused to hear the cases. But they certainly weren't tried. And the questions certainly were not asked under oath and in a public setting. So let's not pretend that, uh, therefore, you know, the courts have decided and we can be sure that everything is great. Because the courts would never do anything that was contrary to the interests of the American people. And then you have the question of another half of the public uh, questioning the ever-changing COVID talking points coming from medical elites, including Dr. Fauci, who, as you may recall, lied under oath about his funding of -of gain-of-function research in Chinese labs. Now, of course, if you mention this, you could end up on their list, so don't mention it. As I look in the mirror, uh, uh (laughs) uh-oh. The article here says, look, these are really bad people. And here's, uh, here's a, a new, uh, this is an excerpt from the, the new guidelines from the Department of Homeland Security. A March 2021 unclassified threat assessment prepared by the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. Oh, this is the same one. This is about uh, the engaging in violent, uh, the potential of in- domestic violent extremists engaging in violence this year. So here's the new DHS guidelines against speech by the criminal Biden regime. And you can, you can click on this and read it for yourself. The problem is, these are pretty benign things. This is, this is a difference in opinion. Just because you question this doesn't mean that you are a violent individual or that you're about to, to twist off and, and do something horrible. But it's being treated as if, well, it's a threat, so we probably better do something to, to shut you down. Look, I'm, I'm not going to stop speaking the truth as I understand it. And part of speaking the truth isn't to state everything with, with absolute certainty as I know this is the case. What I'm suggesting is probably more dangerous than stating something as absolute fact that could easily be debunked. Because I'm suggesting, along with a lot of other folks, we need to be asking more questions. We need to be pressing for more openness and more transparency than we've currently seen. And I guess the danger here is, well, Brian, that could undermine people's confidence in the system. Oh, the, the system that is currently screwing us over? Yes, yes. It would be terrible if people's confidence in that system were undermined for some reason, which we can't fathom, you know, why they would, wouldn't want to trust it. Sorry. Sarcasm's a bit thick today, but be careful. <laughs> Just be careful. Um, I would, you know, I'm not telling you, you need to be careful and not say anything that could be construed as, you know, against, uh, you know, the powers that be. 
I'm just saying be aware that that fight for free speech is much more real and it's it's much closer at hand than a lot of people realize. Look, I think most people are, are basically very good at heart. I think that they live their lives in a way that they're they're trying to just get through life as best they can, not infringe on other people, not impose problems on other people. They don't want to be part of the problem. They'd rather be part of the solution. But most of all, the underlying thing here is we just want to be left alone. And apparently for the people who want control, who who really need to be in control at all times, that's a very dangerous thing. And so when you question anything that uh, that is being handed down from on high, from that centrally planned, you know, thinkers, up, uh, those people up there in the rarefied air who see things so much more clearly than the rest of us possibly could as it pertains to running our own lives, you become a threat to their power. Well, do you want to be seen as a threat to their power? I can only answer for myself, but... Uh, I'll say uh, not only yes, but hell yes, I want to be seen as a threat to their power. Not because I want to take power from them or take power over other people. Again, it comes down to I want to be left alone. I want to be able to pursue happiness, make my own decisions, and to do peacefully whatever my heart desires. Now, notice the word peacefully, so that means you don't victimize or defraud or otherwise impose on other people's rights. But we've got this mindset that, no, 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 everything, everything has to be planned, managed, commanded from on high. That's very antithetical to a nation that calls itself, you know, the land of the free and the home of the brave. My point is you're going to have to be brave from this point forward if the truth is something that actually is a priority for you. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Want to give a quick shout out here to Sewing and Quilting Center in St. George, Utah. It's funny, we're just uh, was looking at some quilts over the weekend at my mom's and just appreciating the intense amount of work that went into them. And this is really kind of a heritage thing. I, I knew my mom was into quilting, especially in the last uh, 30 years or so. She's been, a, she's been a widow, and she's kind of been on her own and needed some things to take up the time. And it's a social thing. You get together with the other ladies and quilt. And, you know, a lot of this was done by hand. But there were so much better ways to do it, long-arm quilting machines being an example. So if you or someone you know is, is very interested in, whether it's quilting, embroidery, sewing, any of the above... SewingandQuiltingCenter.com is one of my sponsors, and it would mean a lot to me if you would do business with them. They service what they sell. Even if they didn't sell you your sewing machine, they could still fix it for you. They will train you how to use your machine, and they really carry the best, most comprehensive supply of machines, supplies, everything you could possibly need for sewing, quilting, embroidery, etc. That's SewingandQuiltingCenter.com. Click on the link in my show notes to learn more. Well, are you ready for some possible good news? Shall we, shall we take a little dandelion break here and, and see about some good news here? Uh, this is an essay by Robert Gore titled, This is Your Last Chance. And what I love here is he talks about how the linchpin of history is innovation rather than government or rulers. 
He says the indictment is long and strong, a cabal of politicians, governments, courts, medical authorities, pharmaceutical companies, multinational agencies, the mainstream media, academics and foundations, particularly the World Economic Forum, have concocted responses to a virus and its variants that have robbed the people of rightful liberties as a mechanism for, their, for the imposition of global totalitarianism. And they have amplified rather than reduced the virus's dangers, inflicting severe injury and death that will last perhaps years, perhaps decades, and afflict millions, if not billions, of victims. But, okay, that was, that was the good news, Brian. Jeez, Louise, don't hit us with the bad news. Here's why this is the good news, according to Robert Gore. He says this is their last chance. They can reverse course and pray to whatever demonic deity they pray to that it's enough to prevent the retribution they deserve, or they can perish in the destruction they've created. But they will reap what they have sown. Their time is up. This is it. The last gasp of the psychopaths who express their contempt and hatred for humanity by trying to rule it. Compulsion, not voluntary and natural cooperation. Power, pull, and politics, not incentives. Competition, honest production, and value-for-value trade. From each according to his virtue, to each according to his depravity. That's a great quote. Their time is up, says Robert Gore. And he says, this assertion may appear as recklessly foolish as Luke Skywalker's ultimatum. Jabba, this is your last chance. Free us or die, did to Jabba the Hutt at the Sarlacc pit. It's not but to understand why... It's not, but to understand why requires an understanding of slow-moving, at least on the human timescale, but enormously powerful forces. His point being, most history studies the wrong things, and most predictions are straight-line projections of the present and recent past. So the linchpin of history is innovation, not governments and rulers. And I like the examples that he gives here. We don't know who ruled back when humanity lived in caves. But we do know that someone tamed fire, someone planted seeds and cultivated them for food, and someone invented the wheel. With such steps, humanity emerged from the caves and began building civilization. Even at this early stage, one thing was clear. Innovation creates new capabilities and opportunities and serves as the basis for further innovation. Government is the acquisition of resources that enables those who govern to exercise control over those whom they govern. So this always presupposes resources, which presupposes production. Government is always a subsidiary to production. Yet most history focuses on the former and treats the latter as a secondary matter. This is looking down the telescope from the wrong end. Before a government can take, someone has to make. History is studied as a dreary succession of violent takers, their kingdoms and empires, their exactions from the populace, their wars, their predations, their monuments, and so on. Now, most of this is trivial compared to the innovation that gets short shrift. Who ruled which nations in 1440, and what effect does whatever they did have on us today? Well, there's not one person in 10 million who can knowledgeably answer those questions. Ask instead if the movable type printing presses, press rather, that Johannes Gutenberg invented that year has an effect on their lives, and most will acknowledge its inescapable importance. And the few rulers who ruled wisely, well, they've largely been forgotten. Wise rule is maintaining the conditions that allow the people themselves to create, innovate, and produce. What's been called the night watchman state. Protecting them and their property from invasion, violence, theft, and fraud are the important but minimalist assignments for such governments. Crucially, such protection of the people extends to protection from the government itself.
This type of government offers would-be rulers no opportunity for larceny, self-aggrandizement, and the power that they crave, which is why they've been so rare. In fact, he says the perfect night watchman state has never been achieved. There have only been a few that came close. Conditions of relatively greater freedom, however, have coincided with explosions of innovation and productivity that have bequeathed to humanity most of its progress. He says the United States explosion was the Industrial Revolution, which launched virtually every important industry we have today and took the nation from its agrarian roots to industrial preeminence. With the exception of Theodore Roosevelt, an outlier in many unfortunate ways, the presidents who presided during the Industrial Revolution have passed into obscurity, always a desirable fate for presidents. 19th century fecundity set the table for 20th century insanity. By the way, for those who are saying, what was that word? It, having lots of kids. Okay, so population growth. Giving psychopathic rulers the resources for two world wars and innumerable smaller ones. History's most totalitarian governments, genocides, and the perpetration of myriad other miseries and horrors. Robert Gore says the 20th century is easily history's most tyrannical and bloody so far. Emblematic of the century is its greatest invention, nuclear weaponry, which can destroy all life on Earth. Now, in the United States, establishment of the central bank and imposition of income taxes in 1913 allowed the government to expropriate a far higher share of the nation's incomes and wealth than it had. Shortly thereafter, ignoring George Washington's sage advice to avoid foreign entanglements, the U.S. entered World War I. The Industrial Revolution and its comparative freedom were over. The accretion of state power that continues to this day was underway. Government resurfaced as the dominant institution, as it has been for most of history, not just in the U.S., but around the globe. Intellectual fashion followed the political trend. Money and power, heady prospects for many intellectuals, were to be had promoting the growth of the state and toadying to its functionaries. Now, a few brave souls spoke out against the trend and championed freedom, but they were ignored and shunned. Today, champions of freedom are consigned to obscure corners of the Internet. Ain't that the truth? He says, you would think that living off the Industrial Revolution's productive legacy would first, with first call on incomes and accumulated wealth, rulers would command more than ample resources to do whatever they desired, but such is not the case. Their schemes and rapacity are unlimited, while even in the most productive and wealthy societies, Resources are not. Governments and their central banks have created a debt explosion that leaves the world in the deepest financial hole it's ever been in. I'm going to cut to the chase here. He says capitalism is the economics of political freedom, and the strangulation of both in the U.S. officially commenced in 1913. They are the antithesis of what we now have, state-directed collectivism. Capitalism and freedom didn't fail the people. The people failed capitalism and freedom. And he says if the people can't handle individual freedom, as collectivists like to argue, they certainly can't handle collectivist power, as the 20th and 21st centuries have amply demonstrated. Ab- amply demonstrated, rather. It's like the one brat in the room full of self-directed, happily interacting children seizing control of the room. Again, this is from Straight Line Logic by Robert Gore. The good news is... You've caught on. You are still yearning to be free. And with that, you will be free eventually. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I don't know when the last time is that you picked up a copy of 1984, and I know it's, it's almost cliche now, well, it's very Orwellian what's going on today, but if you have not read 1984 since you were a sophomore in high school, can I suggest that uh, it might be time to find a little bit of time to read? In fact, if you want to, watch the movie. There was a movie made back, I believe, in the early 1980s of 1984. Be warned, there's, there's some bad language, there's some, some nudity and whatnot. It's, uh, it's a very well-done movie in that it, it portrays the, the gritty, just dark reality that Orwell was trying to communicate in his, in his novel. And, and while it's a lot of people, I know, 1984, anything that's, you know, tyrannical or whatever, you got to really read the book to understand the warning that Orwell was issuing. And to look at what's going on today, you might just come to the conclusion, hey, he was right. I've got a great article here from Matt Taibbi that says uh, Orwell was right. We become the double thinkers that he predicted in 1984 with our free speech and spheres of influence to our passion for endless war. We've always been at war with Eurasia, East Asia, Russia. <laughs> here's, what, uh, here's what Matt Taibbi has to say. He says, this weekend I reread 1984, a book I tend to reach for when I get DEFCON 1 depressed about the state of the world. Deep in the novel, Winston, the protagonist, ponders the intricacies of doublethink. This is a quote from the book. To know and not to know. To be conscious of complete truthfulness while telling carefully constructed lies. To simultaneously hold two opinions which canceled out, knowing them to be contradictory and believing in both of them. To forget whatever it was necessary to forget, and then to draw it back into memory again at the moment when it was needed, and then promptly forget it again. That was the ultimate subtlety. End quote. Now, Matt Taibbi says, In the last weeks, Russia took an already exacting speech environment to new extremes. A law was passed that would impose 15-year prison sentences for anyone spreading fake news about the Ukraine invasion. Access was cut to Facebook and Twitter, stations like Echo Moskvi and TV Rain, as well as BBC Russia, Radio Liberty, The New Times, Deutsche Welle, uh, Doxa, and Latvia-based Medusa were effectively shut down. Wikipedia was threatened with a block over its invasion page, and national authorities have appeared to step in to prevent coverage of soldiers killed in the war. Requiring local outlets to use the term like terms like special operation instead. The latter development is connected to the state media regulator Roscoe let me try that again, Roscom Nesdor, issuing a remarkably desperate dictum requiring news outlets to use information and data received by them only from official Russian sources. Now, Russia appears to be in the middle of a general crackdown on local media, not so much because those outlets are dissenting, but because they're more likely to provide indirect evidence of war failures or the effects of sanctions. The desperation to control news has grown to the point where Russian diplomats in foreign countries are pressuring state outlets in countries like Iran to stop using the term war to describe what's going on in Ukraine. Now, on the flip side, a slew of actions have been taken to crack down on fake news and misinformation in the West. So let's not get too smug here. Well, look at Russia. See, they're as bad as we said. Now let's look at what's going on here. The big one was European Union banning Russia Today and Sputnik. 
Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, and YouTube also cut all access to Russian state media because the EU sanctions also required that Internet platforms delist any Russia Today or Sputnik content, even if it came from individuals. The statute reads, as regards the posts made by individuals that reproduce the content of RT and Sputnik, those posts shall not be published, and if published, shall be deleted. Other governments across the West, from Australia to Canada, have taken similar actions. In the U.S., Google and YouTube disallowed Russian state media ads following a request by Senator Mark Warner and demonetized a number of Russian channels, including RT, but also many non-Russian individuals, before proceeding to demonetize all individual Russian content creators, even the individuals opposing the invasion, even DuckDuckGo. The speechier, more pro-privacy alternative to Google announced it was deranking sites associated with Russian disinformation. A growing list of Westerners have seen accounts frozen for supposed parroting of Russian talking points or abusive commentary. YouTube banned Oliver Stone's documentary, Ukraine on Fire, while Netflix is going so far as to shelve a production of Anna Karenina. In what might have been the craziest move of all, Meta which you know is Facebook, reportedly followed up a decision to unban the neo-Nazi Azov Battalion with a mind-blowing decision to alter its hate speech policies to allow Facebook and Instagram users in some countries to call for violence against Russians and Russian soldiers in the context of the Ukraine invasion, according to internal emails seen by Reuters. Now, he says one would hope there would be at least a few Americans left who'd hear about Russia barring the BBC and Voice of America and at least recognize the sameness of the issue involved with banning Russia Today and Sputnik. Or seeing how pathetic and manipulative it is for Russians to prevent reporting on war casualties, we'd recall the folly of the ban we had for nearly 20 years on photographs of military coffins. Or the continuing pressure on embeds to avoid publishing images of American deaths from our own war zones. We should be able to read that Twitter and Facebook are cracking down on fake accounts spreading misinformation that Ukraine isn't doing well. And notice that Russia's measures against fake news and disinformation about its own military failures, though far more draconian and carrying much more severe penalties, are nevertheless rooted in the same concept. But Matt Matt Taibbi says, we don't, however, because we long ago reached the double-think phase, rather, predicted by Orwell, where most of the population is conscious of double standards but ignores them effortlessly. A healthy person should be able to be horrified by what's happening in Russia and also see a warning about the degradation that ensues from using preemptive force or from trying to control discontent by by erasing expressions of it. But years of relentless propaganda have trained Americans to double-think their way out of such insights. Man, I would definitely say uh, take a close look at, at this. And, and look, the, the thing is, don't worry about agreeing or not agreeing. Just consider the information before you start to uh, before you start to uh, you know jump firmly into one court or the other. But I think that uh, I think that there's. There's wisdom in what uh, Matt Taibbi is saying here. We have become a bunch of double thinkers. We see, oh, look what Russia's doing. Look how bad that is. Without seeing that the exact same thing in principle 
is being done by our own leaders. I mean, I look I look back a couple of weeks ago when uh, Condoleezza Rice, who was the former Secretary of State, I believe under George W. Bush, was on a news talk program or on a uh, Sunday morning, you know, interview program. And uh, the interview was like, well, we all know that invading a sovereign country constitutes a war crime. And she sat there and just nodded thoughtfully. And I'm thinking, hello, Afghanistan, Iraq. I mean, for crying out loud, you know, we're not even counting, you know, the drone strikes in Pakistan or in Yemen or in Libya or Syria. And who knows where else? I mean, we're trying to help get that moat out of Russia's eye while we've got a big beam sticking out of our own. It doesn't seem like a doesn't seem like a very good idea. I think we I think we have to uh it doesn't mean you have to hate your hate your country. After all, your government is not your country. But I think we ought to at least have some consistency in how we apply those principles. And and I'm sorry, if this is offensive to people who have, you know, the blue and yellow flags of Ukraine on their Facebook profile, um, you can still very much support the innocent civilians and not support the government of Ukraine or Russia or the U.S. or any of the other nations that are that are making this conflict happen and, and keeping that conflict alive. Man, I hope this makes sense. It's, I know for some people it's like, nope, you just sound like a Russian stooge, a Putin stooge, that's you. Okay, call me names if it makes you feel better. I'm, I'm okay with that. But I'm not going to start chanting in unison with people, and I'm not going to get in lockstep with people. And I'm, not, I'm certainly not going to say, well, I would die for this cause, when it's something that, that I don't believe in. I think the most important thing here is recognize that the, the potential for manipulation is extremely high right now. And, uh, you know, the, the stories of war atrocities are now starting to come out. And, and it's, it just comes up in, 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 you know, conversation, casual conversation. Did you hear about that maternity hospital they blew up in Ukraine? Oh, my goodness. I'm just asking you to question. Do you really know the story or do you just know what somebody who, you know, ostensibly was there is, is telling you? Because believe it or not, these kind of things, uh, they, they tend to generate a lot of dishonesty. A U.S. journalist was killed in Ukraine over the weekend. And, of course, it's being blamed on the Russians. And that's, that's the immediate thing. Well, the Russians killed this American journalist for no reason. And yet there's reason to believe that it could have been Ukrainian troops that opened fire on this American and whoever was with him, wounded his friend, killed him. The point is there's a lot of disinformation And it's being directed to steer you one direction or another. Don't be so easily steerable. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'd like to invite you to subscribe to my show notes. Go to thebrianhydeshow.com, click on show notes, and you'll see right there in the show notes is a a subscribe button. It's going to ask for your email, which I will not share and I will not sell to anybody else. All I will do is make sure that you're included when each morning I hit the publish button and send those show notes out. And, And, you know, I understand not everybody has the time or the desire to listen to me sharing this stuff on here, and that's okay. But I, I am very grateful for those people who've reached out and said, I love the show notes because you give me 
you know, a tease to get me interested in what the article is, but then I can go in and read it at my own leisure, follow it as far as I want to. And ideally, you know, as weird as this may sound, I'm, I'm hopefully helping my audience transition through that phase of, you know, I want to, I want to hear what's going on. I want to know about the truth, but I want to get you to where you are such a truth seeker that you don't even need me. You outgrow me and you move on to bigger and better things because you are just simply that good. It's not an insult. This is actually a good thing. This is a healthy thing, you know, for you to, to take that stance for yourself. And who knows, you'll probably be creating, you know, other free thinkers and wrong thinkers, you know, in, in your efforts. So go for it. We're all somewhere in that journey of trying to figure out, uh, you know, which way out of the swamp of misinformation. So I'm leaving trail markers just like the people before me have left trail markers that I'm following. Be patient with everybody who's starting that journey because a lot of folks have been red-pilled in the last couple of years and they're starting to realize, ooh, this is not as as I thought it was. In fact, I saw a meme over the weekend that, that really kind of struck me because... Um, you know, some memes have a very clear mocking, ha ha, you know, gotcha, you know, tweak to them. This one actually felt like it uh, it was showing a little bit of empathy. And it's a meme of a, of a person wearing a mask. And on the mask, it says, I'm simply not ready to accept that everything I believed for the last two years was a lie. And I honestly think there there are people who are in that position right now. And I do occasionally see people out and about wearing masks. And, you know, if, if that's what they want to do, that's fine. Some people, you know, uh, I think do it for more of a virtue signal than others. But, I, again, as long as you're not trying to force other people to do it, I'm willing to live and let live. But for the people who are kind of clinging to this and still, oh, you know, I have to mask up everywhere I go. Otherwise, people are going to think I'm a bad person. I think at the heart of that. For, for some of them at least, is that recognition that I'm just not ready to accept that everything that uh, that I was told may not have, have been true. So I'm encouraging you, don't rub their noses in it. Don't humiliate people who are coming to that realization. Help them make that transition, you know, to, you know, out of the matrix and into reality. Show them some love and show them some support. They need that. We all need that. Be as kind to them as you wish someone would be to you if you were making a similar realization. All right, that said, let's move on here for a moment here. Looking at the uh, stratospheric prices of housing these days, it's pretty easy to get discouraged. I've heard, I've heard some, uh, some of the millennials and uh, Generation Y saying, I will never be able to own a house, not at this rate. I mean, I'm a, I'm a Gen Xer, and I'm <laughs> looking at it going, I can see why these prices are crazy. I've got an article here from Michael Munger. This is from the American Institute for Economic Research. All housing is affordable housing. And I thought he had some great insights. He says, if developers build cheap housing, the price of all housing except the very most luxurious will fall. Alternatively, and perhaps less obviously, if we build more luxury housing, then the price of all housing will fall as there will be less pressure for gentrification or teardowns. So this is hopeful. But he says, all we need to do to solve the housing crisis and quickly is to make it legal to build housing. Ah, listen to what he says. Generally in functioning market settings, price signals convey information that's rapidly transmitted to three sorts of actors. If there is scarcity, prices rise rapidly. 
if they're allowed to do so. And the result is consumers buy or use less. Producers make more money if they're allowed to do so. And entrepreneurs come up with substitutes if they are allowed to do so. But Michael Munger says in housing, this system is not working because it's not being allowed to work. The, the regulatory agency, Freddie Mac, has estimated that the shortage approaches 40, or I'm sorry, 4 million units nationally. And that undercounts the degree of the shortage in terms of people who would like to move to larger or closer to work locations. So he asks the question, why is the price mechanism not working? And the short answer is that it is effectively illegal to build housing. So number two, the producers who would make more if they were allowed to do so are blocked. And innovation like micro units or accessory dwelling units, etc., is discouraged. So number three for the innovators is ruled out. The only solution offered by America's city governments is scarcity, as far as the eye can see. In a growing consensus that crosses partisanship and ideological boundaries, including this remarkably candid Obama administration report that he links to, analysts have concluded we need to make it legal to build housing. Now, the housing advocacy group Up for Growth estimates between 2000 and 2015, 23 states used intentional restrictions to block more than 7 million new dwellings that would have been built without the regulations. Even more importantly, perhaps, is the finding that even for the units that were built, as much as 30% and sometimes more of the final cost was caused by regulatory uncertainty, waiting for approval, or the submission of repeated traffic reports, environmental impact statements, and jumping through other regulatory hoops. So what specifically makes building new housing illegal? Well, he says the following categories of zoning, regulatory, and licensing restrictions all play a role. So minimum unit size, maximum number of units in new development, that's part of it, height restrictions on buildings, setback and lot size minimums or extorted green space concession, off-street, often underground parking requirements, even in poor neighborhoods near mass transit. Michael Munger says, in my own neighborhood, Raleigh and Durham, North Carolina, an amalgam of these requirements would work out to something like this. New developments require an inefficiently large amount of land, much of which is, in t- which is required to be used as parking in buildings no more than four or five stories tall. The housing units themselves generally must be a 1,000 square feet or more, although Durham recently allowed a building of smaller micro-units starting at 387 square feet for $1,200 per month. All the units were immediately occupied. And he says you can just do the math in city after city. A Brookings Institution study found that uh, the documents the problem, noting that all three major components of cost, land, labor, and materials, face substantial and in some cases unnecessary and unintentional cost bottlenecks. So the result is that cost for any sort of new unit in areas with burdensome regulation and high land prices will exceed $250 per square foot. For a 1,000-square-foot apartment, smaller than many cities allow without expensive variance permit processes, a developer would need to charge at least $2,750 per month just to break even. Now, the usual definition of affordable is housing that costs 30% or less of the renter's income. But let's expand that and call 40% of income affordable. A worker would still need a pre-tax annual salary of $110,000 to be able to afford our hypothetical, minimally legal new apartment. Worse, municipal restrictions are also the main driving force behind gentrification, 
where relatively rich people occupy parts of what little affordable housing does exist. Since cities allow wealthy neighbors to make it illegal to build market-rate housing, it's hardly surprising that newcomers or current residents looking to expand their living space look to poorer neighborhoods. He says the entire system is built or oriented, oriented rather toward hypersensitivity for local concerns with requests for public comment built into a system that requires prolonged and expensive petitions for the right to build new housing. On December 14th of 2020, Russ Roberts did an Econ Talk podcast with Catherine Levine Einstein on her book, Neighborhood Defenders. This is how Dr. Einstein put it. We create a process where if I'm proposing a new housing development, I have literally no idea how many hearings it's going to take and how expensive it will be. How I should think about my budget. Because it could be one hearing, cut and dry, or I could end up with like five hearings and a year and a half delay. And that unpredictability is deeply problematic. So the bottom line is, yeah, housing prices are high. It's a housing crisis, particularly here in the Intermountain West, where you have so many people moving out of states like California and escaping to freer states, only to find that it's still very difficult to find affordable housing. Supply and demand is at work here, but there's also that incredible amount of regulatory tape that people have to work their way through just to get new housing built. And, of course, we haven't even touched on tiny houses or things like this. So I'm just going to ask the question, what if government could back off and not have to control everything from the top down? What if? I'm convinced that there would be enough innovation. We could find a solution. We've got to get that government off our backs first. This is The Brian Hyde Show.